Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical. This is Critical is the show was the show, sob, more on that later, that questions all of your cultural creeds, including that everything gold can stay, when in fact nothing gold can stay, meaning this is critical, in this incarnation is wrapping up and moving to, got a pen? A notepad? It's moving to my Substack. So please, please sign up to follow This is Critical. It's free at virginiaheffernan.substack.com. That's my name, virginiaheffernan.substack.com. On there, you will get tons of content donuts of delight from political essays for fans of my last podcast, Trumpcast, to cultural ones for fans of this show to whom I am extremely devoted. Your cult fanaticism has kept this show alive for a year, and I hope you will follow me to Substack. Now, recent entries on that Substack, just for a little teaser, have covered what it's like to be trolled by Tucker Carlson, a personal tale, to a bio of that weirdo, Jordan Peterson, to what is the metaverse, how to untangle a necklace, and how... The Elon Musk beloved Tesla robot is in blackface. Huh? I've also recently written about John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, that giant in Carhartts who is now the new face of the Democratic Party. But the big thing you'll be able to find on my Substack is my new political podcast. It might or might not be called Not Even Mad, and you're the first to hear that, so keep it, Mom as well as This is Critical 2.0. Do people even say 2.0 anymore? Maybe we need a 2.0 2.0. So we'll just call it part duh to be fancy, but the new cultural show will include all the sophisticated, not dumbed down analysis you've come to love on Stitcher's This is Critical, but now a free wheeling This is Critical without corporate overlords or ads. So to mark this valedictory episode of our quirky, heady 1.0 show, I am so grateful to Stitcher, by the way, for giving this long shot show a chance. We are going straight into the fire of critical theory and the ideas that have animated This is Critical since it launched. Now, by fire, I mean the third rail, hotter-than-hot context that we most often associate with critical theory these days. That's critical race theory. CRT is an immensely compelling, 
academic practice that treats race as a complex cultural construct and racism as an intractable feature of many cultures and not a sin of certain extreme bad guys. So the ideas of CRT were chugging along like anything for PhDs, like, oh, say, quantum computing or population genetics or forensic anthropology. Till one day, a right-wing nut named Christopher Rufo saw a blissful opportunity for a racist crusade. Rufo borrowed the idea of CRT and used it as a proxy for any book, any old book that says, oh, hey, there's still a spot of racism in American institutions. Or even some picture books that were like, hey, we're all equal whether we're black, white, or purple. It's always purple in kids' books. Anyway, suddenly these books, under the scare banner of critical race theory, were part of a plot by, like, socialists and communists to make white kids have sad feelings. And thus these books needed to be countered with bannings and burnings and the other stuff that makes teachers despair about ever teaching kids anything. And then quit the profession. But at least certain white people get to watch books burn and homeschool their kids in master race doctrine. How did we even get here? Well, that's where Victor Ray comes in, my guest today. He's the author of On Critical Race Theory and a professor of sociology, criminology, and African-American studies at the University of Iowa. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. He understands CRT. He understands the ginned-up controversy about CRT. And I'm hugely looking forward to talking to him. Victor Ray, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Me too. This is Critical has aimed from the beginning, as the name suggests, to do cultural criticism kind of secretly, stealthily. I did a a PhD in English and literary studies and worked with Henry Louis Gates in the 90s when critical race theory was barely a glimmer in the eye of law schools. And I've always found these methodologies for thinking about culture so richly rewarding. But it's only in the recent controversy over critical race theory that I've been reminded that some people just hate theory and hate critical theory and in particular hate critical race theory. And rather than see it as a Socratic mission to blow up assumptions, it's seen as some guilt trip, which has always been surprising to me that it's seen that way. What about you? What drew you to critical theory in general and critical race theory in particular? So I like this question because I think what drew me to critical theory or critical race theory in particular was somewhat personal and also very political. So I start the book with a story of when I was two years old, my dark-skinned uncle And I were at a parade in downtown Pittsburgh, and the police were called on us because I'm mixed race. My uncle was a dark-skinned black man. I was a very light-looking toddler, and someone thought he had kidnapped me. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. growing up in a mixed-race family, that kind of experience was just repeated throughout my life. Even things like this continue to happen. And so when I started college at My undergrad, I started at a community college and I transferred to Vassar. I took a class on critical race theory and there was an 
brilliant article called Whiteness is Property, which mm-hmm. opens with the story of a woman who passed as white to get access to resources. You know, she had moved from uh, Mississippi to Chicago, and then in Chicago, she decided to pass as white in order to work. And her mm-hmm. experience in all-white spaces was, it was mixed in the sense that she now had access to resources that were well beyond what she could get otherwise in the segregated Chicago, but also she was exposed daily to the kind of racism that is built into the workplace, right? Or that as a woman of color, a black woman in that space was taken for granted by her white colleagues. And so when I read this as a a light-skinned mixed-race person, it really spoke to me in terms of my own experience and in terms of sort of the larger structures or the things that folks see if their identity might be a little different or sort of aberrant or unexpected. So that was one of the things that really drew me to critical race theory. Another thing that really drew me to critical race theory was the critique sort of across political lines. So it critiqued Mm. both the open racism that we see on the right in terms of things like immigration policy or, you know, targeting voting rights and the more subtle discrimination that we see sometimes on the left that's about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, but on unequal terms in the workplace. Mm. So those were things that really drew me to critical race theory initially. We're going to take a break. Up next, where did CRT come from and why is it actually kind of playful? Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. with Victor Ray, author of On Critical Race Theory. Victor, this is the question I'm sure you're absolutely sick of answering, but what is critical race theory? So I answer this in two ways. One is critical race theory was a response to the backlash to the civil rights movement. So you had huge successes around, you know, school integration and voting rights and fair housing and employment discrimination in the late 1960s. And then you had kind of an immediate backlash that took a while to really mobilize and start winning some victories. And so Mm -hmm. by the late 70s and early 80s, around the time of the, you know, Nixon and then the Reagan revolution... Scholars in law started to question, like, what happened, right? We, we thought that we had won these victories, and now these things are being pushed back. And so they got together, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and a whole bunch of other folks, and started developing a critique of the legal system, and it focused on sort of how resilient 
racial inequality was in the legal system. So mm-hmm. critical race theory from the start was interdisciplinary. They drew on history, they drew on sociology and the social sciences to make some of the arguments. And I think that that's one of the things that made the framework that they developed portable. So it spread and became kind of a broader framework for analyzing structural racism and explaining why racial inequality is so resilient in American society. Yeah, and there's something playful about it. Playful, I think, about the thinking from critical race theory, partly because it is a way of kind of loosening up the constraints exerted on us by traditional ways of thinking. And the way, I think, to break some of those constraints is to study fields like this. And in particular, your application of critical race theory to classic sociological questions. Tell us about that application to sociological questions. So I'll... Okay, I'm going to get to the second part. (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. Talk about the first part. I'd love that. Yeah, I want to say something about the playfulness of critical race theory because I really like that observation. So to be clear, it is very serious analysis, but critical race theory often brings in parables or stories. So Derek Mm. Bell has written a whole bunch of parables about race, and the one that I I focus on in the book is a classic piece, it's like a critical race science fiction story called Space Traders, in which some aliens come to Earth, they surprise us, and they come to America and say, we want everyone who's classified as black in America, we want to take them all. And they offer something like limitless energy and to pay, you know, the U.S.'s debt and to fix the environment in exchange for taking all of the black Americans. So there's a vote. Some white Americans are against it, some are for it. And eventually what happens is the vote, you know, goes against black folks and they are loaded onto freighters and shipped into space. So it both calls back to the very serious history of the Middle Passage and the slave trade, but it also kind of dramatizes what I think are the numerous trades on black life and compromises between the political left and right that harmed black life over the course of U.S. history. And so we can think here about Reconstruction or the new legal consensus sort of against the civil rights laws that was starting to arise when critical race theory developed in the late 1970s and early 80s. So using parables and narrative in that way, it kind of allows us to think about these problems sort of detached from our own personal politics, sort of in terms of a story. And I think it can be really effective. Uh, I would say for my application, in applying critical race theory to classic sociological questions. You know, in my work, I think about things like uh, organizations and organizational theory, or I've written a lot about racial progress. And I think ideas from critical race theory about both of those things are very useful. So I've written on how the history of organizational theory in the United States often thinks about organizations as these race-neutral things that we just put people into. Mm -hmm. But the history of of slavery, the history of Native American dispossession, the history of the destruction of the property of 
black businesses, or the burning of Chinatowns, the usurpation of land from Japanese Americans during World War II, all point to organizations being formed through processes that are heavily, heavily influenced by race. Um, so that's one way. Another way is the history of, of racial progress. And so I tend to think that, you know, the way race and racial progress gets talked about in the United States is often a just-so story. Things were bad under slavery. We fixed that through a war. Then we had Jim Crow for a while. We fixed that through the civil rights movement. Obama was elected, and now we're post-racial. I think this is much easier to understand given the backlash of the Trump era and the rising white supremacy before that. But I think, you know, all the way up and through the Obama era, um, talking about how intractable racial inequality was, folks would very quickly point to Obama or Oprah or Jay-Z, other black celebrities, and say, those days are over, sort of what are you complaining about? And then finally, I'll say, I think the empirical evidence in social science that discrimination is common and that these problems are are deeply ingrained um, is pretty overwhelming. If you look at life expectancy, if you look at educational outcomes, if you look at health, if you look at where pollution is, if you look at the history of segregation and contemporary segregation, all of those point to uh, an analysis that is at least heavily consistent with critical race theory, if not confirmation of some of its points. Yes, a critical race theory is not just a heady idea. It has these uh, practical applications, this use value and explanatory power when it comes to these sociological phenomena. That, that makes sense to me. So Ibram Kendi has talked about how white supremacy and anti-racism kind of rise together, right? So on the one hand, we have those four years of a very racist president, but those were the days when the Confederate statues came down. They did not come down under Obama, notably, or other Democratic presidents. And we never saw an uprising like the Black Lives Matter uprising that was as radical and direct uh, of that magnitude and that global commitment. So when I think about progress, I'm not sure how much time we should spend persuading unpersuadable people. Like we often hear Trump voters kind of name check Dr. King or Rosa Parks as if, you know, we've left that all behind and racism was vanquished in the 1960s. And instead of arguing with them and kind of trying to convince them to see their racism present in the 2020s, I think the kind of action that you talk about as sociological action is more persuasive. You just get it done. Take those statues down immediately. You know, demand kinds of police reform that get around trying to have a discussion with people about critical race theory who don't enjoy it or who misinterpret it. What do you think? So I have two quick answers to this. One in the book is I'm pretty clear that, you know, I write that I, I have no illusions that a book by a mixed-race professor talking about critical race theory is going to convince some folks. There's mm -hmm. good like psychological evidence that some folks, when you tell them, if they believe that, for instance, the criminal justice system is fair and just, and then you show them statistics about how unfair and racially mm -hmm. biased it is, they have more faith in the system because mm -hmm. they see that evidence as confirming that it is fair. And so one of the things I say in the book is I am looking for people who see the sort of moral panic around critical race theory right now, say, 
I don't really know what this is. I'm mm-hmm. interested in good faith and I'm, I'm willing to explore the ideas. So those are the folks that I hope to reach with the book. The thing that I would say about progress, Kendi has another quote that I think captures this really wonderfully. And he says, yes, there has been racial progress, but there has also been racist progress. Yes. And so a lot of what you are talking about there in terms of folks praising Dr. King or praising Rosa Parks are doing that at the same time in which they're dismantling the legacy of Dr. King and Rosa Parks, right? And so they have this rhetorical commitment to equality while they are, for instance, overturning, you know, the Voting Rights Act in the Supreme Court, cutting out the ability Mm -hmm. to enforce that by literally, if not quoting Dr. King, at least like claiming that they're being colorblind in the application of the law. And so, you know, one of the things that critical race theory tries to do is draw attention to how colorblindness and certain kinds of dog whistles allow for those contradictions to be carried out, allow people Mm -hmm. to sort of deal with the cognitive dissonance between a deeply racialized or unfair policy and Mm -hmm. their supposed uh, non-racial commitment to equal opportunity. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, despite what the conservative activist Chris Rufo and his ilk will tell you, CRT isn't in schools. So how has his group managed to get so many people so worked up about it? That's next. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. We're back with Victor Ray, the author of On Critical Race Theory. So, Victor... Chris Rufo has made it his weird crusade to keep CRT out of schools. But I keep thinking, keeping CRT out of high schools and grade schools is fairly easy. I mean, I don't know any public high school whose curriculum is informed by the thoroughgoing CRT that I know exists, right? And sometimes, I mean, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I sometimes I want right-wing racists, especially far-right racists, to get tangled in terms so they don't notice actual progressive policies. I'll give you an example of this. It's like in FDR days with the New Deal, there was just this ongoing debate, endless grinding debate about what the federal government could do and whether socialism or welfare or any of those things, you know, were, were worthwhile. And meanwhile, FDR sort of nodded and then just did his whole program, (laughs) you know, and that's how I feel about the statues coming down. The debate lingers, but the statues come instantly down. As some people say on climate, we don't have to get a consensus or agreement on the fine points of this stuff in order to act. 
But I don't know if maybe that seems like a cop-out when it comes to the Christopher Rufos. But why don't you tell me, how has this group managed to make CRT the boogeyman of all education? So I would say this. One of the things that I try and do is not engage with what I consider are bad faith critics of critical race theory because I actually think the strategy that you're talking about and getting bogged down in terms and saying this is or this isn't critical race theory is the strategy that they have adopted. I mean, Rufo himself has tweeted this and, you know, the quote I use from this is in the Washington Post. I forget the exact quote, but it's something Mm -hmm. like I'm trying to to lump all these things that Americans don't like under the banner of critical race theory to basically Mm. delegitimate the concept. And so, Mm. you know, many of the things that they're attributing to critical race theory are like alien to those of us who are familiar with critical race theory or use it as an analytical, you know, approach in our work. So, you know, for instance... Trump's executive order banned diversity trainings. Well, Derek Bell and critical race theorists have been some of the most critical of diversity trainings, like from early on. They said that this is a way to avoid substantive change. So early on, I was like, you know, a little confused by what they were doing. And I'm like, this makes no sense. Like, this isn't critical race theory at all. And and that is part of the point. So the reason that I, I don't engage the bad faith is the point of the bad faith is to get us running around in circles. It's to waste our time. And I am not going to sort of like platform bad faith critics who are just going to move the goalposts if I engage with their arguments. Now, that being said, I also think it is important One, to try and clear the air, but two, to take these seriously in terms of bad faith or not, they can do a lot of damage. So one thing that I haven't seen covered enough is Christopher Rufo is a former employee of the Discovery Institute, which if you remember the sort of culture wars over quote-unquote intelligent design versus evolution, the Discovery Institute was the primary group pushing teach the controversy over evolution. I have been very disappointed that the press hasn't focused more on this history because he's a veteran, at least of a think tank, whose entire strategy is to muddy the waters around empirical fact in order to get a political agenda into schools. I think that should be taken very seriously. And I think the impact of this on teachers who, you know, we have reports of teachers quitting. We have reports of teachers being very worried, changing their syllabi, changing their lesson plans, being worried about being able to talk about things like Native American genocide and slavery in schools. So it's very serious, even though part of their point is to make it seem unserious or, you know, dangerous to white students. That's also very useful. By studying a little bit the 1925 Scopes trial and its consequences for the conversation about so-called intelligent design and the so-called controversy around evolution, I did discover that it started in a weird way when you talk about like pushing these things back. It was a sort of subliterate by his own explanation. He couldn't read very well. White man who 
essentially worried that his children and other people's children were coming back from school not believing in God. They were getting a better education in Tennessee, and they were coming back not believing in God. And then he looked through the curriculum with someone who understood it better to try to locate where they were learning something at odds with Christianity. They started in the humanities, and this is a time where they're praying, and, you know, there's plenty of Christianity. Virtually every teacher is a believer, is a Christian. And, you know, there's plenty of things you learn in school all the time, including the way water works that's at odds with the parting of the Red Sea and everything else. But he decided that evolution was the thing that must make them come home and think their parents were rubes, right? And now I think maybe, and maybe this is giving too much credit to white critics of CRT in schools, but maybe what's the primitive fear that is up here is the worry that I think we all have to some extent that your kids are going to go to school and become smarter than you, uh, better than you, and start to think of you as a hayseed. I mean, the, the primitive fear that we have about our children, that they will leave us and even worse, turn on us, gets projected onto evolution, CRT, you know, whatever it is. What do you think of that? So I'm a parent. And I think there's a couple of really interesting points here. When my son was about four and we were in the car, and like I wrote this down when it happened because I was so shocked by it. He says to me, Daddy, why did the police kill Freddie Gray? And I teach this stuff. I think about it every day. I thought about it since I was, you know, old enough to start thinking about race in the U.S. And I was like profoundly sad because I had to tell my son something that was really horrible. Now, I'm an educator and I respect my son enough to think that he's old enough to ask the question, he's old enough to get an age-appropriate answer. Mm. So I talked with him about it to the best of my ability at the time. And so I do think that, yeah, parents have a fear and want to protect their kids. But what I also think is that, like, one, what you were saying about education is, like, education is for self-actualization. And part of self-actualization when you are a parent is, like, allowing your kid to have the tools they need to navigate the world that we have created for them. And Mm -hmm. from my perspective, they need to get age-appropriate, honest assessment of that world in order to Mm -hmm. do that. The second thing is that, like, I would say, you know, this moral panic, when we're talking about kids, like, who's kids? So one of the things that critical race theory would say was, like, there's an assumption in these groups that, like, white children are the default and protecting them from knowledge of, like, what their forebearers did is really important. And I would say the U.S. is rapidly diversifying, that we need different stories. And I grew up in that educational system, and I won't say it invariably harms, but Mm -hmm. it can harm students of color. Like, why did I have to be in college before I learned basic facts about things Mm -hmm. like Reconstruction or, you know, downward mobility among Black families or many of the things that I experienced growing up in a mixed race and Black family 
I didn't have explanations for until I had higher education. So what critical race theory would say is there is a hidden racial group that's being protected. And like one of the things that critical race theory tries to do is show how, you know, this isn't necessarily universal. There's this great book, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, and he says in the book, like, when we sanitize history and make it this sort of triumphalist narrative of, you know, unvarnished American greatness, we actually make it really boring. And history is full of conflict, right? History is full Mm. of battles. History is full of, like, really interesting arguments and ideas. And And sanitizing it, one, disrespects children and what they Mm -hmm. can understand, and it turns them off to learning about these histories altogether. So it's kind of a double disservice. I mean, the last thing I would say is one of the reasons that I think that this is happening, this critical race theory backlash is happening right now, and actually Christopher Rufo said this, was people were really scared about the protests around George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And they attacked the literature and the body of scholarship that best explained the prior backlash, right? So here was was this body of literature that, that explained how folks regrouped after the civil rights movement, the protests around George Floyd's murder were some of the biggest in United States history. And I think some folks were worried and they figured out how to regroup. Conflict and fire is exciting in history. I mean, you have a lot of traditionalists saying, why don't you teach war? Why don't you teach the Civil War? Why don't you teach the battles, right? I think that it is really interesting. And Selma, the movie about Martin Luther King, did a really good job with this. Talking strategy, you know, It is incredibly interesting to see talked through the civil rights strategies that the Women's March organizers say were trained in about how to take blows, about being in a church basement. I mean, there's no kid who's bored in a classroom would not be inspired to hear some of this stuff. And Black Lives Matter was very strategically organized. And that's what I think was electrifying about it, was like how different groups were called to different places in the city uh, using Instagram and so forth, and how people protected themselves. I found that another way to teach it, which is like, why are we, as you say, history can be boring if you don't tell about conflicts. I I absolutely agree. I spent a long time reading civil rights movement history, like sort of outside of my explicit sociological training. And it is absolutely fascinating. And I mean, even the debates about strategy or tactics were just fascinating because we get this, again, sanitized version of this history that makes it seem like movement actors were in agreement and they knew Mm -hmm. what to do and they had sort of a a linear path they were on. And when Mm -hmm. you read the history, you're like, whoa, this was all contingent. This could have really gone another way. Mm -hmm. What we see as victories were like often just barely won. It's really fascinating. I would also say kids learning about racism have a overdeveloped sense of fairness, right? Like if there's Mm. anything young kids are worried about, it's like, Mm. did we get the same number of, you know, treats at a party? Did we, right? Like fairness is central to their worldview. And so part of what I think is that like 
For some white parents, kids learning this history, it's not that their kids are too fragile or won't understand it. It's that their kids will understand it perfectly and start questioning their lifestyle. And, you know, I I like it when my kid questions my choices. I think that that shows that, you know, he's reflecting on the world and we fail. (laughs) And it's good for him to to notice that, uh, even if it hurts in the moment. But I think there's a branch of parent or a kind of philosophy of parenting in which kids shouldn't be doing that. And an education that teaches them to do that or that points out the contradictions is, I think, really threatening to some folks. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say to listeners that you don't have to have a strong moral position to take an interest in these questions, just a certain amount of curiosity about conflict and history. So tell me about feeling bad. Because these letters and even Rufo's work really seems to proceed from the idea that you'd hardly think conservatives would have been into in the age of Buckley that a student shouldn't be made to, quote, feel bad in their history classrooms. I would say this about that, like, education is about growth, and sometimes Mm -hmm. that feels bad. (laughs) I would also say that... uh, Or, you know, being disturbed, like you hear that the case in which a woman was trying to get beloved banned and it made her son feel bad. And yeah, like American history, parts of it like should make you feel bad if you're a normal person, right? Like, Mm. like there are atrocities. There are things that were done on the name of the country or against the stated ideals of the country. And I think that's part of like moral growth. And I don't think that that is necessarily something to be avoided. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's right. Although I also think that, I mean, just only to complicate that a little bit, that as a response to fiction like Toni Morrison and Beloved, feeling bad should be weighed out on the scale. I mean, I watch far too many detective series about terrible crimes And I don't watch them (laughs) with the feeling like, oh, I feel guilty somehow about this crime. I mean, something like Beloved, obviously, is a masterpiece. And, you know, you have these characters that fall in and out of the reader's identification and interact with each other in different ways and have all their responses. To say that a response to a text is that you'd feel guilty about your own actions in the world or about your father's actions in the world seems like an act of projection by the people aiming to ban it more than an actual literary response. I mean, I I don't disagree with you there. I think it says more about the reader than it does about the book, right? (laughs) Yes, or or the non-reader. I mean, I do suspect that lots of these books have not been read by the people aiming to ban them. Yeah, that is probably the case too. Well, let's hope that your book is widely read And if it's banned, may that only spark more sales for it and more uh, influence for it. One last thing I want to ask you is, why should academics and cultural critics continue their work in the face of malicious ignorance that we've seen in the backlash to CRT? Oh, 
I can speak for myself here. I don't know about <laughs> speaking for like cultural critics more broadly. So you just said, you know, if my book is banned, hopefully that would like spur more readers. When I was a kid, I used to like get banned book lists and that's what I would read. Absolutely. I genuinely believe like if there is something that someone doesn't want you to know, that's probably the thing you should be learning. So these folks are telling us critical race theorists and people who do the kind of work I do to shut up. If they have their way, we will be forced to. And I'm going to say what I want to say as long as I can. Absolutely. <laughs> right? But I think I think being silent in the face of this kind of thing really only helps the bad actors. I mean, I've seen, and you probably have too, jokes uh, on Twitter about God, critical race theory gets all the breaks. Now, if only we could start banning, you know, forensic anthropology oh, yeah. or, you know, or, or theoretical math, then my field might get a boost. You know, banning pornography, as we know, worked wonderfully well. So I, I doubt it is going to succeed with critical race theory. I do want to be clear. I don't want to take away from the danger of this moment kind of politically, because I, I like the fear of the danger of this moment is one of the reasons that I felt the need to write the book. Like what I think critical race theorists and the body of like scholarship that they are drawing on before, which I would call a black radical tradition, took extreme risks in order to make sure that their analysis got out there in the world. And I I just think it's really gross the way folks are misrepresenting and smearing that. Thank you so much for being here, Victor. This Thank was, you. This was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. As I said at the top, the show is going on hiatus. But never fear, it'll be back and better than ever. To hear about it the minute we're back and get all kinds of my political and cultural writing, please subscribe to my newsletter. It's virginiaheffernan.substack.com. virginiaheffernan.substack.com. Leave a message when you join and say hi. You can also always follow me on that microblogging platform, Twitter. I'm at page 88. Stitcher's version of This is Critical has been made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and of course, Stitcher. Thank you, Stitcher. And huge thanks to Ayla Fetter and Michelle O'Brien, the extraordinary producers of this show. Tracy Samuelson is our meticulous editor. Massively imaginative Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our fearless executive producer. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.